I say this all to the time when I sit down to do these things, but I swear, I swear that today's going to be pretty quick. What I want to talk about is why we use this whole thing with peer-reviewed research. When we uh, talk about building knowledge through schooling, there's this giant emphasis on using these databases through your library where peer-reviewed research is published in these periodical journals. And it seems so arbitrary and frustrating because this isn't the kind of information that you and I use on a daily basis. This isn't the kind of thing that uh, promote a lot of discussion in our lives. And it doesn't seem like it's necessary to go through when you're writing a paper or you're making an argument or you're referencing some fact. What a lot of people miss is the deceptiveness of the information cycle. The information cycle is the way in which uh, new findings and events are um, cataloged through the public. And tracking the information cycle shows you um, the immediacy of an event, but it also shows you the way that knowledge about that event is built over time. If you've been following along, you realize at this point that there's not a lot that we can trust about what we think we know about things. And the information cycle is uh, absolutely exposes a lot of this unreliability in our lives. So what happens with the information cycle? Um, the day that something happens, the day that something happens, the first thing it might hit is social media these days. Um, my Twitter feed was much quicker about um, changes in, uh, let's say, the presidential election in 2020 uh, than even newspaper headlines were. Um, social media hits with information immediately, and we know that this is true, especially when you have eyewitnesses who are seeing things as they unfold. Um, the Capitol riots of January 6th were a good example of uh, the fact that you could get onto Twitter and um, watch it as it happened and watch eyewitnesses watch it as they happened and get some instant commentary. And uh, it's the way a lot of, um, you know, uh, coordination can happen between things in real time. It's exciting. There's nothing wrong with social media um, when, when it's used wisely. It, it, it can be a lot of fun. Um, we can get into all sorts of issues about fake news and bots and, and Trojan horses and stuff that happen in social media. But uh, as far as the information cycle is concerned, um, it's an exciting place, um, social media. But it is not very dense with information. While you might see what's going on, let's say the Boston Marathon bombers um, story was one that was uh, broken on social media before anywhere else, um, you don't get a lot of in-depth information. The first in-depth information that might come out um, that day is on television. And usually the extent of the depth of the first news stories to come out after an event happens um, is verifying that it did in fact happen and verifying sometimes some of the key players. Um, sometimes this can be a frustrating process because um, news channels don't want to uh, make a lot of mistakes and um, displace trust between themselves and the viewer by um, arriving at conclusions faster than they can be verified. So news stations have a tendency to step into events cautiously and um, sometimes with a slant of their own and sometimes without all the information that's needed. 
and of course, um, you know, blogs and um, uh, other um, very uh, quick sources that are information driven show up the day of an event happening. The week of, um, usually the next day, but more in-depth things come out later that week, happens in newspapers. And newspapers um, employ journalists who are uh, dedicated towards um, digging at information and, of course, verifying uh, the, the facts of an event or of a finding or whatever it's going on that you're paying attention to. Um, and newspapers have the ability to go a little slower than Twitter. Even with Twitter's, you know, character expansion, uh, you only get so much information, even in long threads uh, through Twitter. And newspapers have this, um, it's sort of like a pause button where somebody with some time to dedicate can get a little bit more information that is usually a little bit more verified and a little bit more in-depth than uh, the initial reports um, indicate. A week or so after a major event, uh, you're going to see this um, event be recounted in magazines. The magazines have a little bit better use of time um, and space, uh, whereas the average um, newspaper article might be a thousand words or it might be four thousand words, a magazine article will regularly be um, 10,000 words, uh, sometimes 30,000 word, word long-form um, journalism isn't out of line. It happens. Uh, and popular magazines, you know, Time, Newsweek, The New Yorker, um, National Geographic, uh, what have you, that uh, can take a little bit more time to gather information. They can gather it from multiple news sources, multiple newspapers, multiple television shows, and really go over things in a little more detail with a little bit more verification than uh, what you're initially seeing and what you're seeing that week in the newspaper. The next step in the information cycle, which is usually months later, is when you're going to start seeing academic and scholarly journals. And the academic and scholarly journals uh, happen when um, researchers, scientists, social scientists are able to look at the information that's coming out that is um, broadly verified and are able to um, study the effects of uh, what has happened as a result of this or uh, as what as um, this new, you know, if it's something, uh, some new finding that you're looking at of, of, of the implications and questions for further study. This is the juncture where things start becoming very reliable. You have lots of different people whose this information has gone through. It's been verified through multiple sources. Um, usually within months, um, culprits are um, uh, indicated and verified, and uh, you can take a better look at the events that led up to a certain major event, um, whatever it is that you're studying. And this is the point where um, verifiable, repeatable knowledge really happens. Now, years after that, Years after that, you're still going to see information coming out of a major event. Books, um, uh, major publications, um, usually having 50,000 words or more. Um, government publications that um, archive this as a um, uh, history. 
um, reference collections um, as it, it enters the literature of what is knowledge. So let me give you an example. Um, the example I'll use, uh, darkly enough, is um, the uh, um, shootings in uh, Littleton, Colorado, the Columbine shootings. The day that came out, um, social media was young in the 90s, um, but the day that that came out, uh, information started hitting the internet pretty quickly. And news cameras obviously flocked to this little high school in uh, Colorado and started covering it with very spotty information. You were getting eyewitnesses talking to cameras. Um, people were mentioning uh, mini shooters. They were mentioning um, all sorts of different weapons. They were mentioning um, uh, all these different names. And, and uh, by the end of that day, by the end of that day, there was all sorts of information out about these shooters. And it was uh, this stuff about them being, you know, this, uh, the, the words that you almost never hear anymore was that it was this trench coat mafia. It was this group of kids who were outsiders, who nobody paid any attention to, who um, uh, were, were cool and dark and um, quiet, who did this attack. And you started hearing stuff about, like, the music they listened to. Um, if you weren't around in the late 90s, you probably don't understand um, how uh, completely villainized um, Marilyn Manson was for the Columbine shootings. That his music influenced these people, uh, influenced these outsiders into believing that violence was the answer and uh, radicalized them um, and desensitized them to killing. And uh, newspapers picked this up and ran with it. They ran with this trench coat mafia theme, this, um, you know, Marilyn Manson music should be banned. There were radio stations that were refusing to play um, Marilyn Manson. Now they don't have to refuse. It's just not, you know, in vogue. Um, and as more information starts coming out um, from the day of, uh, we started seeing that, no, this wasn't several people. This was two people. And uh, that these two people, um, you know, uh, evidently were wearing uh, trench coats during the shooting, but really had nothing to do with a group of people who regularly wore trench coats in any way. Um, and uh, little by little, what kind of weapons they were using, how many people were killed, um, all this different information started coming out. Um, a couple weeks later, uh, as the started hitting magazines, something that, that struck me as interesting was that Marilyn Manson wrote an article for um, Rolling Stone magazine um, not really so much in defense of himself as it was damning of the media. And uh, his thing was that the media people were told initially that these kids um, listened to, to Rammstein, which was um, sort of a hardcore uh, German band that was, you know, not super popular at the time, but existed. And that the press evidently, not knowing an equivalent uh, to Rammstein ran with Marilyn Manson as being a closely related um, musical figure. And as a matter of fact, um, according to Marilyn Manson's article uh, and what had been learned of over the coming um, two or three weeks since the shooting was that these kids actually hated Marilyn Manson and um, thought he was lame, thought he was a poser, and never listened to his music. So, um, as a matter of fact, instead of Marilyn Manson radicalizing them, they actually rejected Marilyn Manson. He had nothing to do with it, but the damage was done. 
the damage was done on Marilyn Manson's career, whatever. Uh, not that that was the, the main issue here. And so uh, within a few uh, months, we started learning more and more. And, and here's the thing. People have this causality fallacy where people have to try to find cause. You know, 20-some people are killed in a high school senselessly. And yet, there is, um, I hesitate to use the word witch hunt, but there's this constant, like, fervor to find out why did this happen? What motivated these shooters? As if you're going to find some sort of, like, motivation that will explain it or that's going to lead you back to something like a musician or a television show or a movie or a video game that is to blame, that you can then cut out and then remove all of this influence from our daily lives and therefore subvert the risk from it happening again. Now listen, if your brakes lock up in a car and it causes a car accident, that's relevant information. Especially if you find out that that model of car has the brakes lock up and cause a car accident more often than not. If you find out that the accelerator in your car sticks, um, then uh, and it's a systematic flaw that keeps happening to a car over and over again, then your causality bias is great. It points towards a problem that is solvable. By taking that car out of the field, by repairing it, whatever, then you avoid having those problems again. Most likely, if someone like Marilyn Manson were causing people to um, uh, kill other people, and he has sold millions of albums around the world, um, what exactly is the percentage of people radicalized by this mu music? If uh, a certain video game is uh, in the 90s, Mortal Kombat was completely villainized for its violence. And these days, of course, there's all sorts of simulation games that are far more violent. A certain video game causes people to become radicalized to the point where they're going to go and shoot up their classmates. What exactly is the percentage here? If 50 million games are sold uh, worldwide and it happens one time, um, likely we are not making correlations likely what we are making is um, false conclusions, false causality. And so that's where the academic journals step in, in the Columbine story, is saying that there is absolutely no correlation between listening to Marilyn Manson or Rammstein or any of this music and violence. That this was not the cause. That whatever different rumors were coming out at the time, the day of, the week of, the month of, that none of that was the cause, that we can't point to that as the causality of this event. That causality is something much deeper, that um, certainly depends on the individuals, and uh, the, this idea that these are the quiet loners who were longing for the approval of the popular kids, who were bullied and um, uh, reacted. Again, how many of us experienced things like that without acting out? And so this is where the academic journals come in. And they point towards these factors. They look for correlations. They look for these things mathematically, statistically, to see, is this possibly the cause? Being a loner, being an outsider, wanting approval. No. No, this isn't the cause. This thirst for causality, this desire to know the reason why something happens, is not looking for justification. Is it looking for scapegoat? Possibly. Is it looking for solving and it happening again and again? Possibly. 
but it does not want to look at uh, um, it, it usually these assumptions are pointed at something easy and uh, do not include um, many of the factors that are sort of base rate for our society base rate that we have very easy access to firearms base rate that we have a very um, violent society base rate in that school shootings were getting a lot of attention and that uh, people's you know kids who did school shootings their manifestos are being published and that this was a a, a pathway towards this um, you know pseudo fame or what have you at the time uh, you know possibly still going on so the books come out years later in a, about um, 15 years after the Columbine tragedy there came out an excellent book about Columbine wherein uh, the reporter who who headed it up really got into the research, got into the, the social science research with, with the scientists working on it and um, everything else leading up to this to, to discover that, that they, they dissected and studied hundreds of pages of journal entries from these two kids. And they traced every single movement as, as sharply as they could. And they, they traced familial relationships, deep interviews with people who met the kids hundreds of times to people who met them just one or two times. And what they found is that one of them was legitimately a sociopath and that the other one was legitimately a, uh, someone who was seeking the approval of the sociopath and that they were nothing like what these stereotypes were being said. They were nothing like quiet loner types. That they in fact were reasonably popular, um, happy seeming kids, um, that the one uh, who was sort of seeking the approval of the other was um, got quieter and more reserved as it approached the date of the attack, and that the sociopath never let on about that there any, was anything wrong. And it got into to, uh, deep analysis of his background, of the parents' background, of all kinds of things that factor into this, that paint a picture of something that is essentially a singularity, but is a singularity that is only really capable of happening under the societal conditions that they were under. So if these very same kids were, uh, you know, born in the, the middle of, um, you know, England or Australia, um, uh, just to limit our confounding variables there, this wouldn't have happened. Not in the same way. Not at all. That the thrownness of the situation lent uh, the ability for such a tragedy. So the information cycle is something that um, uh, is unreliable at the beginning and gets more and more and more reliable as time goes on, as we find out more, as we build our knowledge. And this is one reason why we don't want students in classes writing research papers from newspaper articles. That what they're finding there is hearsay, it's often wrong, or it's not the whole truth. And this is one place where we get into lots of trouble with social media, that students read headlines, students, that anyone reads headlines in social media and, uh, again, creates this, this simulation of knowledge. 
that they feel like they've assimilated something from reading a headline. But headlines are deceptive. Headlines themselves have a framing effect. A framing effect is a type of cognitive illusion where the way the information is presented to you creates a bias in your mind. And it draws on all sorts of different, you know, um, language and visual and cultural um, uh, factors to build this up, uh, to build up this cognitive illusion. And the framing effect of a headline um, can expose the um, bias of the news source, it can expose the bias of the person sharing the article, and it can expose, um, that's only if you can cut through that framing effect, which is hard to do. Uh, so a good example is um, if you have, um, let's say you're into this frozen yogurt and it's 80% fat-free. That's a framing effect. You don't say, man, I'm really into this frozen yogurt and guess what? It's 20% fat. That's one of the most classic framing effects out there. You know, for a while um, in the uh, early 2000s when organic products were getting a whole lot of traction, um, I remember seeing a label that said, uh, that the product was 86% organic, which is exactly the same as saying that it's not organic at all. So the way that you frame information, the way that it comes at you, is uh, will open a door in your mind to um, the seriousness of what you're talking about. It will, it will affect the way that you absorb this information. So for example, I recently saw a headline that said, that um, air pollution is now a leading cause of death. Air, air pollution is a leading cause of death. How leading is it? Well, it's a leading cause in lung cancer deaths. So that's much more specific because um, smoking and secondhand smoking were still above air pollution for lung cancer deaths. But there's um, nothing untruthful about the headline that air pollution is a leading cause of death. It's just a matter of how much that changes your opinion about the seriousness of the problem than when you read the scientific study that the newspaper pulled this from that said that it's a leading cause of lung cancer deaths. There's nothing wrong with changing people's minds about air pollution and trying to get people to be environmentalists, but that framing effect is a deceptive headline. And we can see this all the time. These framing effects uh, are, uh, again, they're, they're powerful. Uh, um, a, a good political example is the biggest tax cut in history, that the amount of taxes being cut 1.4 trillion dollars in tax cuts. You know, what a wonderful thing for the American individual. Of course, they're just talking about 0.1% of you, because those are the people who are saving the 1.4 trillion dollars. In fact, they can even up the taxes in other areas and still call this a tax cut if the net result is a tax cut, and a 1.4 trillion dollar largest tax cut ever if it only benefits, you know, 0.1% of people and benefits 0.01% of people more than that. So that's a powerful framing effect. Uh, we can, through repetition, 
make words sound like bad words. Um, Growing up in the 80s, you know, communist was a terrible word, and socialist was just behind it as um, frightening. And through repetition, this this power is gained. Um, The the book, um, uh, 1984, by George Orwell, uh, much of it is about this idea of newspeak, of uh, boiling down our words to uh, stop us from thinking in lateral ways and in repeating certain words in certain ways so that they begin to take on a powerful slant in the language, a powerful slant in the way we view and witness and understand things. And headlines are great at this. Headlines are not informative in and of themselves, but how many times have you read a headline, shared on social media, and then said to somebody later, oh, hey, you know what, I heard that they, or I read that they found life on Mars, or whatever it is, without having any idea what the facts are, without having, going very deep at all. Uh, people love to share these like outrageous headlines that are published about um, suggested, suggested findings in quantum physics. And say, hey, did you know that every time you dream, it's actually a peek into another quantum universe? Um, well, that's one idea, yeah, but like they're, they're very, very, very far from concluding something like that. And the headline that's drawn from academic research uh, becomes suggestive because it gets clicks, it gets shares, and that's what people are looking for, clicks and shares. And it becomes uh, easy Again, looking at that ease of mind cognitive bias to believe that you know something about it. So our solution from this, from an academic standpoint, is insisting that research be done only from reliable sources. At some point, yes, there is some faith involved. At some point, you're trusting that the publishers and the scientists and the researchers working on this are not lying to you. But... That is the powerful nature of science, social science and physical science, um, is that it is competitive, it's adversarial, so that these things must be made repeatable for it to be true, for it to be held up as truth, because other scientists will try it out. They see your results, they're going to test it as well, and that better be uh, replicatable, or else it's not a fact. It won't be seen as true. And that's why peer review is so important is because you have people who are all shouldering each other to make sure that something true is shining through, something important enough to be brought forward and added to the literature, and something that is verifiable enough to be done so. And uh, this isn't the only way to do this, but it's the easiest, most reliable way to build knowledge. Most reliable, most credible way to. And uh, this is why, you know, academics get all tied up about something like Wikipedia, where people can change things. Is Yes, Wikipedia is pretty darn tremendous. And I do recommend Wikipedia as a reference for yourself that to go there and uh, educate yourself on something and uh, to follow the links and follow, follow the citations and whatnot, but it's still a secondary source. And a secondary source is um, just not as good as that primary source. 
because of those framing effects, because of those misleading interpretations of findings that happen anytime information gets digested and reprinted. But instead of like feeling like this is you being victimized and, and, and the, the academy uh, being uh, exclusive, click on those links, find the primary sources, go forward with it. But anyway, I just felt like this is something that we really have to get at, is this, this nature of a valid, reliable research and why it does seem to be kept behind a locked door of um, your uh, academy. But this is, this is where libraries come in. Libraries open that door. Libraries are far from being um, uh, unnecessary. Libraries are um, your entrance into a world of knowledge to participate in it. And the best part is that you can use any of this information absolutely for free. If you're using it responsibly, you can do it absolutely for free. And, and that's, that's pretty wild in a uh, primarily capitalist society that we live in.